seeing it, and then he's commenting and writing and singing about it. Verse 2, he said, it's like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. Verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Life forevermore. So, once again, 132, 133, 134, they're a package, they go together. There a, uh, there's a prophetic progression that goes there. And, and it's important to note that each one of these are progressively more challenging. I mean, it's intense to make the vow for a dwelling place of God. You know, I mean, making a vow before the Lord is a serious matter. David makes it, he says, my lifelong pursuit is to have a dwelling place for you, God. That's intense. Well, the next thing is even more intense. Brethren dwelling together in unity. That's even harder. Come on now. Just, you know, come on. You know that's even harder. Because we get so, whatever, ticked off, peeved at each other over so many little matters that don't matter. We get so petty, don't we? Over anything that's possible. If there's a possibility for something to cause us divide, to divide, we find it and then divide over it. Think it through. Well, they sprinkle when they baptize. Well, they dunk them. I'm getting a new denomination. The full dunkers. Well, we're the sprinklers. Well, we're the dunkers. And then they'll argue over the theological implications over the Greek word baptizo and why it must be immersion, it can't be sprinkling. What if you're in drought? What if all you got is a cup of water? You got to get the guy in the cup? What if he dunks his finger? Does that count? My time in China has served me well. and It's interesting because they'll... They've told me about conversations that they've had, and they've told me about how so often the missionaries from the West have served them so well, and then they've told me about how missionaries from the West have created so many challenges for them. So one group comes and says, we've got to baptize all the way, uh, and that the baptisms that we had learned before with sprinkling, that it doesn't count, so we had to rebaptize all these people. And they said, you know, we just couldn't figure out who had been sprinkled and who had been baptized. We didn't know who was legal or not. And then we just realized, that's just a bunch of fooey. And then the one group came in, they said, well, you can't have any women preachers. Well, they said, you know, all of our men are arrested. So we can't have church now? And they just found all these little divisive issues... And they said, we appreciate you, Western people, but y'all got too much time on your hands. We're over here suffering for Jesus and trying to win people to the Lord and, you know, running from the police and all these things. And you guys are over there splitting hairs over whether or not it's a full cup of water or a full bathtub of water. And, uh, yeah. So Psalm 133 is evidently and obviously more difficult. 
in Psalm 132. And then Psalm 134, be the most intense. Now, let me just walk us through Psalm 133 and let's think this through for a bit. And this, just so you just don't tune me out right now, this is not a mamby-pamby kumbaya, let's all, we are the world, we are the children, hold hands and just all be in unity now. That's not what I'm doing right now. I want to walk through this and I want to, I want to call us out of our petty divisions. I want to call us out of our splintering and our offense and our strife sowing and our backbiting. Because I don't know about you, but I want a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And if we can comprehend that when we divide and bite and devour and get into dissension and get into all these petty things that, that cause splintering and an issue, if we can comprehend that that is keeping us away from being a dwelling place of God in the Spirit, then we get a good choice before us. Am I going to uh, exalt myself and my personal opinions, or am I going to humble myself and repent and become united with my brothers and sisters so I can be a dwelling place of God in the Spirit? Are we together? So this isn't just a little kumbaya campfire message, so don't tune me out. So there's two metaphors here, metaphors here that, uh, that David gives us. He says it's pleasant and good. Pleasant and good for brethren to dwell in unity. He says it's like two things. The first thing he says it's like is the oil that was on Aaron as the high priest. When, the, when Aaron was uh, anointed with the anointing oil, it's, you can find the story in Exodus 30. Just write it down. They, the special anointing oil they made had several different spices. You weren't allowed to make it for any other reason. It was for the express purpose of anointing the high priest. What they would do is they would take this, this uh, portion of oil, this large portion. They wouldn't do it like we do. We get a little bit on your... your you know, just a little bit on the guy, you know, on your fingers. So you just don't mess the guy's, like, mess his hair up or whatever. You know, just, you don't mess up her makeup. You know, you just, we just, little, we just do a little touch. They didn't do that. They took the whole deal, the whole jar, and they would just, just dump it all over the guy. You're not wearing that outfit again. I mean, it's just, it's done. It's oiled up. So they would pour it over the head. It would completely cover. It would run down the face. And it would be so much that it would just continue to spread until it literally covered the entirety of the guy's garments all the way down to the floor. Now that, that anointing oil is referred to multiple times through the scripture. And it's referred to as an oil of refreshing, an oil of joy, an oil of blessing, an oil of anointing with heavenly, heavenly uh, ability and grace. And that anointing oil, that, that picture, that, it's a metaphor of what was on the priest. It was an all-encompassing anointing. It was a covering anointing. It, it touched every part of the person. And so when he's giving us this idea that the dwelling together in unity, it's like this anointing. What is he saying to us? He's saying there is an anointing for fellowship. And the anointing for fellowship is a priestly anointing. It's something that actually ministers to the heart of God and to the heart of man. He's actually drawing, you know, he's drawing ideas from this, this concept of the priest being anointed with oil. It's a covering thing that gets all over everybody. Anybody ever had one of them, like, you know, the guy got real, 
real Pentecostal and just poured it all over you? Anybody ever had one of those? Yeah, hallelujah, a couple people. When that happens, I mean, they pour it up here. They can pour just a little bit. And in a minute, it is down here. That stuff just spreads. It's like, I mean, it's like the blob. It just, just goes everywhere. It, I mean, it, you, you get a little up here, and it's down here on your shirt in a minute. It's amazing. But I can't imagine how getting the whole thing, just doing the whole Crisco bottle. You, know, you just, I mean, it, you'd, be, you'd, be, you'd be slick for days. But the point is, it's this all-encompassing anointing. It covers every piece. It covers every part of the body. That anointing of fellowship is to cover every part of the body. That anointing of unity, that anointing of refreshing, that anointing of joy is to cover all of us. You see it? It's a priestly reality before the Lord. We minister to the heart of God and we minister to the heart of one another when we come together in unity. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the blessedness and the pleasantry and the goodness of what it means to love and to fellowship. To love, to really love, to get over yourself and love. Get over yourself and love. Man, this, I'm, I'm not talking to y'all now, I'm talking to me. Just get over yourself and love. Just come out of yourself and all your preferences and just love. So there's multiple implications there. But the one that's just evident is it's supposed to, this fellowship anointing is supposed to cover everything. And there's, I believe, a real anointing of of fellowship, a real anointing of, of Christian fellowship and love. I've been in meetings we do a summit among leaders here. It's an invitation-only summit that we do uh, among key leaders uh, that are in the prayer and mission movement around the nation. And last year at our summit, it was the most interesting thing because there was such a unique anointing of fellowship and joy over the entire gathering. Nobody was competing. Nobody was measuring themselves against each other. Nobody was jockeying for position. It was so unusual. And, and there were so many young guys, which, you know, they're all, you know, young guys are just, they're kind of known for like, you know, sizing people up and then making a judgment. But there were so many leaders of, of significant things here, and they were all hanging out with one another, serving each other. I mean, there were probably 50 people in the room at any given time who could have, you know, preached a message that would have just rocked the house, but nobody was fighting for the platform or trying to get their word in or da-da-da-da-da. It was just this amazing anointing of fellowship. And I remember coming off of that few days and just being absolutely invigorated with joy and love. And I, I remember for the first time saying, I feel like the Lord's introducing an anointing for fellowship that I've never understood before. That's a real one. It's a real anointing. And I've been in those environments where that thing, you, can, you sense it. There's just real camaraderie, love, and honor among the brethren. And nobody is trying to get their own thing. Instead of it being, you know, me, it's us. It's us. There's just a totally different place that it goes when, it's, when it quits being, you know, about me 
and it, and it starts being about us. So the, the second metaphor that he uses is this, the dew on Mount Hermon. And he says that it's like the dew of, of, of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. When you read the commentators, there's a, they differ on, is this Zion or is this Sion? Sion, S-I-O-N, would be among the mountains of Hermon. Zion would be the one in Jerusalem, but it's about 100 miles from Hermon. So you kind of go, well, I don't know that that's, you know, the same place. Because what it's talking about is this. Mount Hermon is one of the highest mountains there in, in the region. And, and so the, the top of it is almost always in snow. And when that dew, when, when that snow melts and evaporates... The dew that comes off of Hermon is so thick, those that are pilgrims around the, the mountain that, that, that you know, they, they you know, report about staying there in tents, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be any rain there because it's like you got rained on because the dew is so thick. It's, so, it's such a thick dew that comes off of that mountain, it's just like it rained. And uh, some believe that they're talking about the, how the, the wealth of that dew, the plenteousness of that dew, how it could even go as far as Mount Zion, a hundred miles away. And so that's the metaphor, perhaps, that this, this rich, life-giving dew that travels even a hundred miles. It, it covers a vast distance, and, and, it, and it, it covers even Mount Zion. The richness of this fellowship is the idea. It's so rich. It's broad. It's, it's plenteous. It covers much is the idea. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's that idea. And so he says it's like this anointing on Aaron. It's like this dew on Mount Hermon. And then he says, uh, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Life forevermore. Well, again, there's a little bit of a question on what there is. Where is there? Is there on Mount Zion? That's one choice. Or is there in the place of unity? Let's just take a poll. You can pick which one you want. How many like, I mean, this is really, just pick one. How many like there being Mount Zion? Just raise your hand. How many like there being unity? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. I like them both. The Mount Zion people hesitated. You kind of looked around and went, oh, not many people raising their hand. Just, I wasn't really, I was just scratching my ear. Well, here's the thing. I think it can be both. I think it could be both. The Mount Zion, if, it, if there is Mount Zion, there the Lord commanded the blessing. He commanded it on Mount Zion. It has a real pertinent application to David. Here's why. It was on Mount Zion that Nathan prophesied to David, from your lineage will come a line of kings, and Messiah shall come out of your loins, and he will reign forever. That could very well be what's being referred to in Psalm 133. Life forever under the reign of Messiah. Amen. You find that in Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 7. 
We don't have to read it. It's just 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. That's where that prophecy is. It very well could have been that he said, there on Mount Zion, Nathan, I mean, if it's David, Nathan prophesied to me and he told me, Messiah is coming and he will reign forever and ever. It'll be life forevermore. It very well could be that. Or it could be there in the midst of unity. I like them both. And the in the midst of the unity, there the Lord commanded the blessing. In the NIV, it says, it has it in a progressive tense. It has it commands the blessing. In unity, the blessing gets commanded by the Lord. He commands the blessing in unity. In real unity. Not that fake, smiling, how are you doing? Blessed. How are you doing? Blessed. And you walk away, man, I can't stand them. Not that. It's time we're done with that, y'all. It's t- I mean, it, we seriously, the church has got to be done with that. That is just not right. That's not the Sermon on the Mount. That's not love. That's just junk. But in the midst of unity, in the place where brethren are dwelling together in unity, and there's this anointing of fellowship, there's this joyful, refreshing anointing, there's this love, this forgiveness, this, this equally yoked, you know, connected hearts, this this sharing, this body thing where we're, we're part of each other and we, we sense it and we know it in the midst of that where we're, we're connected in heart. Man, the Lord commands a blessing there. Man, that's so important because that means this. If I will operate towards that, I'm operating toward the Lord's commanded blessing. But if I oper- operate in any way against that, I'm inhibiting the commanded blessing. Really? I just, I mean, we just got to deal with that for a minute. If that's what it's saying, I believe it's applicable. I think it's real. In unity, in love, with hearts open, with arms locked, with authenticity. He goes, man, I command blessing in that place when when my people live like that. But when we live in such a way to inhibit Christian unity and love. I believe we're inhibiting the commanded blessing. Which in this context would be the dwelling place of God. The manifestation of his power and presence. And I don't want to be in that at all. I, don't, I mean I don't want to say a thing negative about anybody. Who cares if I agree with them? It's, my opinion counts for zero. Our problem is, is we have way too high of a value that we've placed on our own opinion. We imagine our opinion carries all this weight. So we freely share it, rattling off at the mouth. And in the meanwhile, what are we doing? We're dividing, dissenting, sowing strife, backbiting, getting out of accord. And what's it doing? It's inhibiting the move of the Holy Spirit. And I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't care what they're doing down the street. If they love Jesus and they're calling people to love Jesus, I'm for them. I don't care if they do it like us. I don't care if they do it on their head. I don't care. Who cares? I don't care if they run around and swing the chandeliers or they sit quiet as church mice. Who cares? 
If they love Jesus, I'm on their team. I'm on their team. If they don't, who cares? If they don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, if they do believe in the gifts of the Spirit, who cares? If they love Jesus, I'm on their team. Period. And that covers all of the denominations, and Catholics too. Look at this, Ephesians 2. I mean, we got to deal with this, gang. Ephesians 2. This is so important. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. He's talking about the joining together Jew and Gentile, together in one household. Do you know how intense of a separation was between the Jew and the Gentile in the first century? I mean, it's just... You just don't say this stuff, Paul. Well, he goes, Jesus, that's what the cross was about. Jesus was about bringing everybody together. You are of God's household. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. What is being built? You and I. You and I are being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. Talking about the household of God, the dwelling place of God, the building of God. Verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple. Note that word temple, I'm going to come back to it. A holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in whom you also are being built Together. Everybody say together. You're being built together as a dwelling place into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Listen, we can get all stirred up about revival and city takeovers and tell stories of old revivals and all of that, but there will be none of it if we don't figure out how to dwell together in unity. We're kidding ourselves. We think we can go around backbiting, talking bad, all that dissenting stuff. And, and, and look, it's not just in one community. I'm talking about all the communities. Don't you dare point a finger at them and say they're this, that, and the other. If they love Jesus, they've got their warts just like you and I do. That's why we pray, beloved. We pray. That there'd be real love shed abroad in the heart of the bride. That she'd know the height, the width, the depth, the length. And know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That she'd have a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. So that she could see him, fall in love with him, and fall in love with each other. That's why we pray. That, I'm so over it. I'm over that arrogant thing where people prop themselves up and they imagine, well, ours is the best. Bigger, better, first, more. Any language like that, it's goofy. It's worse than that. It's sin. It's arrogant. And it causes dissension and division. And it's inhibiting the movement of the Holy Spirit because he wants us to be the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And man, yeah, I look at it, I go, man, the church is, you know, really... In need. In this area. 
And I, you know, I don't know that Joe Networker guy, like the anointed networker, is going to show up and make us all like each other. I don't think that's it. I think we're going to have to fall in love with God, get a revelation of Jesus, get a revelation of what's his heart, and all of a sudden we'll find love and we'll find each other. And love will abound still more and more. And from that place we'll find unity and that anointing of fellowship will come on us. And all of a sudden, everybody will put down. They'll start putting down their own will, their own ways, their own preferences, and will love. And there'll be a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. That's what we're being built together in. Consider Acts chapter 2, that verse 1, you know it. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were all with one accord in one place. And then just that next phrase. And suddenly, there came a sound from heaven. Oh, I want that. Don't you want that? Look, I know it's challenging. It can be awkward. Intimacy with people can be difficult. Why? People are weird. We're weird. You're weird. All of us. I'm weird. You're weird. If you're sitting next to them, they're weird. I guarantee you they're weird. We're all weird. We're funny little things. We're funny little creatures. We think all sorts of strange stuff. We do weirder stuff. We say funky stuff. I mean, I've never, it's never been so evident to me as a father. I just, I mean, a thousand times I ask my kid, why'd you do that? I don't know. We do all sorts of stuff. We have no idea what we're doing. It doesn't stop when you're, you know, become 20. It just gets worse. And by the time you're 40, you know how to mask it, but you're doing weird stuff big time and you're thinking weird stuff. And you know it. It's what we are. That's why Psalm 133 is harder than Psalm 132. Because we're weird and we know it. And we need an anointing from God to bring us together in this thing. Amen. But we've got to decide that we're not going to voluntarily do stuff to inhibit unity. Amen. We've gotten to decide, hey, no, there's something more important than my opinion right now and my selfishness. It's God and his manifestation of power in the midst of his people. That's, that's got to be of utmost, important, of utmost importance. See, here's the thing. We can't do Psalm 132 without Psalm 133. You can't do the Psalm 132 and carry it out without the anointing of Psalm 133. That's why I put them right next to each other. He makes it so that we need each other. Think that through for a minute. He makes it so we need each other. And not just the people we like. You're like, man, I'm in unity. You got three friends. You don't talk to anybody else. <laughs> of course you're in unity. Ignoring people doesn't equal fellowship and love. There's got to be an anointing that comes on us that yokes us to one another. And we love beyond ourselves. We love beyond our preferences. That's a big one. We love beyond our preferences. Because in love, that's the cross, gang. Jesus loving beyond his preference. Father, not my will, but yours will be done. 
there's a thing that we've got to recognize. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to bring, bring the plane in right now. And, and this is just it. The biblical paradigm of, of you, of Y-O-U, is mostly corporate you and not mostly individual you. The Hebraic mindset was mostly the nation and not the individual. If you read the New Testament, if you'll really understand what Paul's doing, he's talking about when he's addressing the churches, he's addressing the corporate you and not the individual. What we've done is we read things so individualistically. We, we read the Bible. I mean, myself, and I mean, this is how I've read the Bible for years. I look at the verse, I read the verse, and I go, how does that apply to me? But maybe the point is the verse is supposed to apply to us. In fact, I can guarantee you, the, the, the vast majority of what Paul is saying to the churches in the New Testament is supposed to apply to us. It's supposed to apply to them and not specifically just how it applies to the individual. But we read it with such an individualistic lens and you know, on, 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 the, on the best side we're just, we're just trying to get our heart close to God personally. On the worst side we're just narcissistic. I love you guys, man. Just love you. But Paul when he's addressing the New Testament church, he's addressing the corporate reality far more than he's addressing the individual. And, and that's how it is throughout the scripture. And so, like a verse like 1 Corinthians 3, for instance. Chapter, uh, chapter 3, 1 Corinthians and verse 16. He says, uh, don't you know that, y-, this is the NIV, it gives us a little more clarity. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. How many have ever heard that that verse is about you're not allowed to smoke cigarettes? Let's be honest. I will guarantee you 100% Paul is not thinking about smoking cigarettes in that verse. I promise you. And I'm not advocating smoking cigarettes. It'll kill you. (laughs) Don't do it. It's bad for you. It makes your breath smell, your hands stink. Don't do it. But that's not what he's talking about there. He's talking about us. And he's talking about people destroying us. By having infightings, sowing strife, Sharing false doctrine and the like. He says, if you are destroying God's corporate temple. Remember Ephesians 2? You're being built together as a temple. He goes, God has a real problem with that. God has a real problem with that. What is, how does he say it? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That's not about smoking cigarettes. It's about taking aim at a brother or sister and tearing them down. Because you 
us, we are the temple of God. Most of the time, you've got the one verse in 1 Corinthians 6, but most of the other times that the, that the, in the New Testament, when temple, building, you know, any of those words, tabernacle are used in describing uh, the, the, the people of God, it's the corporate idea, not the individual. Most of the time, when the word calling, I'm about to flip the tables, when the word calling is used, it's the corporate calling, not what am I called to? We are so paralyzed over trying to find our individual calling, we've missed the corporate calling of the people of God. It's to love God and be a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Who cares if it's selling bananas or selling MacBook Pros? Who cares? Be a part of the the temple that he's building for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And love. Love well. Love crazily. Love. Love. At all costs, love. Because I want that anointing of fellowship. I want that anointing of unity. I want that anointing that brings us out of ourselves, that brings us into something that God's dreaming of, that we would be a body with one mind and one mouth glorifying the Lord Jesus, that we'd fall so in love with others we'd forget about ourselves, and therefore we wouldn't exalt selfish ambition. and We wouldn't exalt, you know, how, you know, how much do they have and how much do we have, and are they doing it like us or are they not doing it like us? We wouldn't get into all those games. Where's that James verse? There it is. James 3.16. I'm landing. For where envy and self-seeking, I think it's the, whichever one I have here, the other two, I can't remember if I've got the NKJV here, or whatever. The other versions say selfish ambition. Yeah, this is NKJV. N-A-S-N-I-V. For where Envy and self-seeking or selfish ambition exist. Confusion and every evil thing are there. You know why someone exalts their opinion over the body? They're being selfish. Just being selfish. When that thing is in play, when selfish ambition, self-seeking selfish ambition is in play, it opens a door for the demons. You want the demonic? Backbite, so strife, talk about the church down the street and talk about the guy in the, uh, on the end of the row from you. You want the blessing of God? Dwell together in unity. Is that clear? I'm instructed over these words. I'm not standing up here with a big, you know, rod spanking everybody. I'm, I'm instructed. I'm going, Lord, I've got to learn how to love. I've got to learn how to love beyond myself, beyond my comfort zone, beyond my preferences. It, it's just, it, I really have got to get to this place where love has reduced me. Self is minimized, and he has increased, and I have decreased. And, and you can say stuff like what Paul said. And see, when Paul said it was true, I have been crucified with Christ. 
Nevertheless, I live, but it's not I who's living. It's Christ. We love to quote Galatians 2.20, but man, is it legit? I'll just give the altar call. That's it. So Psalm 132 requires Psalm 133. To do the vow, we've got to have that anointing of fellowship and unity and love. That's, that's the only way it works. To be built together as a dwelling place of God and the Spirit, it requires that one accordedness that they experienced on the day of Pentecost. Does that make sense? Amen. Let's stand.